Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Um, Happy New Year to you. It's it's good to be back in contact again. Hope you had a good Christmas and New Year. Uh, before uh, we start the podcast today, I think it's worth thanking all of our listeners for all of the comments we received over the holiday period. Um, a lot of very complimentary stuff. Also, a lot of suggestions about stuff that we might consider covering over the coming months. Um, we have taken everything on board. Uh, we will respond to people. We will get back to uh, those suggestions and hopefully, um, you know, deliver what our audience is actually looking for. So thank you very much for that. Um, it really is good to get that sort of feedback and that sort of reaction from our listeners. Um, here we are at the beginning of another year, 2022. Um, obviously, COVID-19 Uh, continues to dominate the landscape and we have spoken a lot about COVID over the last 12 months. Um, I suspect we will again over the next 12 months Uh, but before we start to think about COVID I think it's worth thinking about global politics at this juncture because I think 2022 is going to be an incredibly important year on the global geopolitical front Um, In April, we have the French presidential election, Um, Macron standing again under some pressure from um, a couple of other candidates within the French uh, political system. And um, I I guess the really interesting thing about Macron is that, you know, whether he's elected or not, um, it comes at a time when the German, Germany has a new regime with Olaf Scholz now in power, 16 years of the CDU 
and Angela Merkel gone. So there is a little bit of a political leadership vacuum in Europe, and it will be interesting to see how the French election plays out in that regard. So I think keeping an eye on what happens in France in April um, will be incredibly interesting. Uh, the second thing, and arguably much more significant event, will be you know what happens in the United States over the next year. On the 6th of January, which is tomorrow, we have the first anniversary of the storming of Congress. Pretty dramatic stuff uh, that continues to resonate in the US political system. Uh, there is an official ongoing investigation into what actually happened. Um, so, you know, what that comes out with and indeed the reaction to it will be incredibly interesting. Then on November 8th, we have the midterm elections. Um, at, at that stage, one third of the Senate seats approximately will be up for grabs and that the House of Representatives likewise um, will be replaced. Um, at the moment, the, in the Senate, there is a 50-50 tie. The Democrats have 50 seats, the Republicans have 50 seats. And as a consequence, the Vice President Kamala Harris acts as the tiebreaker. So a very, very narrow margin of advantage for the Democrats in the Senate. And in the House, currently, the Democrats have a 222 seats compared to 213 seats for the Republicans. So what happens after November 8th, I think, will be incredibly interesting because um, there is a long history in the United States of the incumbent president's party suffering in midterm elections. So if the Democrats suffer even slightly in these elections, well, both houses could swing back to the Republicans. So that that would be incredibly significant two years ahead of the next presidential election. So what happens there will be really, really interesting. Um, over the Christmas period, um, I read three pieces that I think are interesting in the context of what's happening in the United States. Um, I read the biography, the autobiography of Larry Donnelly called The Bostonian. Um, Larry is a lawyer from Boston who moved to Ireland and is now lecturing law in NUIG in Galway. And he's also a regular pundit, particularly on US politics, on Irish media. Um, I like Larry. I think he gives a very balanced um, approach to political analysis. And his background is interesting because um, unlike the rest of his family and his uncle was the legendary Brian Donnelly, who introduced the Donnelly visa back in the 1980s. Um, so a very strong Democrat family. But Larry in his early days was actually a Republican, uh, but in more recent times switched back to the Democrats again. So he does give a pretty balanced and nuanced approach to his analysis of the United States. But anyway, in his biography, um, I thought it was a fascinating read by and large, um, a lot of background to politics in Boston and how it works. But I think more interestingly, um, he assessed the current state of US politics and what the future might hold. And what he really focused in on was this very, very extreme bipartisanship that exists in the US political system at the moment. And he believes, I think correctly so, that both the left wing of the Democratic Party and the right wing of the Republican Party are equally culpable 
in terms of the mess in which the US political system currently finds itself. So I, I would strongly recommend the Bostonian for anybody interested in uh, the US political system. The second piece was a leader in The Economist magazine this week. Um, the Economist was talking about the threat to democracy in the United States at the moment. And it started off by citing a number of interesting survey statistics. Um, 40% of politically active people in the United States currently say that members of the other tribe are evil. 60% believe that the other tribe are a threat to the country. And 80% believe that the US political system needs significant major re reform. And I guess most startlingly of all, well, startlingly, it's not that startling, I guess, but in a sinister way, 70% of Republican voters believe that the 2020 presidential election was stolen by Joe Biden from Donald Trump. And so it's, it's, it's against that sort of political backdrop. You know, The Economist is trying to frame the midterm elections on the 8th of November and the importance of those elections. And it, it points to the fact that um, a lot of Republicans who were involved in the ratification of that election result around the country are currently um, attempts are on the way to remove them from office. So and replace them with Republicans of the Trumpian persuasion who do not appear to believe in the spirit of democracy. So. You know, you'd have to say the overall conclusion from the Economist piece is that the 244-year-old rule of law in the United States is currently under significant pressure. And indeed, the Economist goes on to talk about um, the dangers and the possibility of civil war, which sounds pretty dramatic. Uh, but when you think about what's going on in the States at the moment, it may not be that dramatic and particularly if we turn our minds back to what happened in uh, the House of Congress on the 6th of January last, pretty sinister stuff. So that's an interesting leader piece from The Economist. And the third piece is one that you referred me to this morning, which is Tom Friedman's piece in The New York Times this morning, um, where he, you know, he it's the basic title of the article is What Side Are You On? And I think um, that's a play on a song from Pete Seeger, Back in the United States, back in the 1960s, if I remember correctly. Um, but anyway, Chris, uh, you found this piece very interesting. Um, tell us about it. Sure. Thanks, Jim. And Happy New Year to you as well. Thanks for that intro. Um, before I come on to the, the Tom Friedman piece, which I think is really, really interesting, I want to wind the tape back a little bit to what you were saying about Macron and the French elections coming up in the second quarter of the year. Um, Macron's been in the news over the last couple of days, most entertainingly, in my opinion, um, talking about something about which I spoke at length about in our last podcast, actually, which is a bit of a rant about the anti-vaxxers. Macron has gone on a bit of a rant of his own, and he's taught me a, a French word I didn't knew before, didn't know before, emmerde, um, which apparently means to piss off. And he seems to want to do that precisely to the French anti-vaxxers. Relative to the United States, and I think relative to the UK, actually, there aren't that many anti-vaxxers in France. It seems that there's about 50 million people fully jabbed in France and about 5 million who haven't. And Macron is getting very cheesed off with those 5 million because I think 
he is beginning to suspect what uh, a lot of data analysts have been pointing to tentatively, but with increasing force and with data to back it up, that the problem with the latest strain of Omicron and the way in which it's threatening hospitals and health systems everywhere is that the, the it's the anti-vaxxed that are, to a considerable extent, filling up the hospitals. The language that Macron used was very much, I think, in, in keeping with, with the fact that there are elections coming up in France and that he's trying to unite his base behind him and trying to divide the right between the two women candidates of the, of the right that are opposing him. And I think it was a very political uh, speech, this anti-vax speech that he made. And he, what he was doing, is he, it's interesting to actually examine the context of it, because I think it, it kind of speaks to a lot of our own personal experiences and what we're seeing both in Britain and in Ireland. President Macron was actually speaking to a nurse who told him that uh, 85% of the acute beds in her hospital were being occupied by the non-vaccinated. And she also told Macron that operations for vaccinated cancer patients were being cancelled, postponed. And how, she asked Macron, can we persuade the anti-vaxxers to get vaxxed so that we can get on with treating um, non-COVID cases? He replied by starting to say that the the worst enemies of democracy are lies and stupidity. I think that's a wonderful line. I really do. And my own view is that we are actually living in an age of stupid, sort of a reverse or anti-enlightenment. But those are my prejudices. But Macron went on to say that, by and this is a quote, by pissing them off ever more, when it comes to the non-vaccinated, I'm very keen to piss them off. So we're going to do it. The end. That's our strategy. Pretty direct stuff. And as I say, it's as much and directed at trying to solve the hospitalization problem as a political, because his political comment, because his base will love this. And there's been all sorts of fake anger amongst the various political classes of, of France. I think that's interesting. It's, it's an example of how the debate is going to go in France, how the election is going to go. Macron, I think, already is playing quite a clever hand. The politicization of COVID, we've spoken about that before. That's clearly something that's a global phenomenon. That's France. That's Macron. We'll come back to him, no doubt, several times over the next few months. You mentioned Tom Friedman and a commentator of long-standing repute in the New York Times, wrote an article that began by discussing a movie that many of us saw over Christmas, and it's called Don't Look Up. Now, the intellectuals out there and the and the literary critics and the movie critics of, of highbrow standing absolutely hated this movie. Um, it had a stellar cast, Leonardo DiCaprio and a whole list of others, uh, Ariana Grande, the list went on. It was a very uh, simple story, a simple script, and I think that's why the, the, uh, the highbrow critics absolutely hated it, because there was no subtlety to it. There were no highbrow literary allusions to, to other movies or to other works of, uh, works of art, um, and it was a straightforward story about scientists spotting an asteroid about to hit the Earth and probably going to destroy it, and finding that they couldn't get anybody's attention. Nobody from the President of the United States down to the most ordinary person in the street could uh, was remotely interested in the fact that the, the world was about to come to an end. And of course, people think that that, was, that must have been an allegory or some kind of read across from the threat from climate change. And Friedman made the point that um, I've actually been making um, so there's two of us making it now, so it must be right, that this was, yeah, yeah, of course, it could have been about climate change, could have, could have been about lots of other things as well. And in particular, the existential threat that the 
these political developments that you spoke of earlier, Jim, are for the, for the democracy, for the future of the republic that is the United States. The extinction-level event that is about to hit the United States is not climate change, potentially, but more the re-election of Donald Trump. Another economist article um, that I read over, over Christmas was a wonderful piece that explained and put into great historical context what's going on on the Russian-Ukraine border. It was a very long and involved piece and meant that you come away from it with, with a, a much better understanding of why uh, Russia has already fomented military action in eastern Ukraine and why it annexed Crimea um, when it did. I'm not suggesting I've got any sympathy for those actions, but you certainly get a better understanding of what, what is going on than from the simplistic stuff that you get. But in that article, there was a, a U.S. Secretary of State, Brzezinski, once famously said that uh, Russia could have an empire or it could have a democracy, but it couldn't have both. And that's exactly what's playing out. It's, 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 you can have one or the other. And I was reminded of this one or the other type comment from Liz Cheney, the famous Dick Cheney, that ultra right wing uh, vice president uh, of the United States under Bush. His daughter, remarkably, is leading the charge from the Republican side against Trump. And she said um, only the other day, you can either have the Constitution of the United States or you can have Donald Trump, but you can't have both. There was uh, an, another article that I read over, over the weekend, which was written by a right winger, not, not an ultra right winger, but a guy called Niall Ferguson, who's a Scottish historian, now resident in, in the United States. He may even be a United States citizen now, but I still think he's got his Scottish brogue. And he wrote an article for Bloomberg in which he said that the problem is that the world no longer sees the US as a shining city on a hill. And this is this is uh, not the historian Niall Ferguson speaking. It's more like a festering slum on a floodplain. Pretty strong stuff. It was a very long piece. Ferguson claimed to have written it from an independent centrist type perspective, but he, he is coming at it very much from the right wing. And he made the same point that you made earlier on, is that uh, the right wing says that the left wing is just as bad and that all this stuff that's going on on the right, particularly the ability of state and local governments to over overturn future elections, which we all find very sinister, and all the other things that the Republican Party is doing in the guise of bringing Donald Trump back. Ferguson makes that same point that you made, which is that, well, you know, you on the left, you on the democratic progressive side of things are just as bad with all your wokeism. Now, trying to equate wokeism with staging an, a, a coup-like attempt on the capital of the United States as being both sides of the same coin, I think is a, is a little extreme. All this stuff is just grist to the mill of the Chinese and the Russians, of course. And Ferguson himself pointed out that the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs earlier this month published an essay-length critique of American democracy. Now think about that for a second. You've got the Chinese Foreign Ministry ruled by the Communist Party. China has never in ever been a democracy of any any kind, really critiquing American democracy. That's what we've come to. And if you, and Ferguson quotes all sorts of opinion polls about the way in which Americans see themselves and the way in which foreigners see Americans. For example, the, there's a, a, a non-partisan organization called Freedom House, which seven or eight years ago gave the US a score of 93% in its annual freedom score, freedom in the world. And, and that's gone down to 83, which means that the US now ranks 60th, and it is below 
Argentina and Romania in, in democracy scores. And so it goes on and on. So we have the US, which I think that um, all of this adds up to a, a funny kind, and by funny, I mean grotesque rather than hilarious, civil war. Um, who I, I've absolutely no idea how it plays out, but I do think that if Donald Trump is restored to the throne, the threat to American democracy and to the American constitution as identified by Congresswoman Liz Cheney, I think is very real and, and potentially very, very serious to the point where things could start to happen as soon as those midterms that you referenced uh, for the, the coming November because I have seen suggestions that one of the first things that the new Senate, Republican-controlled Senate and House will do is impeach Joe Biden that, and, and also Kamala Harris, impeach the two of them together. Because obviously, if you impeach Joe Biden, you will then get President Harris, and they don't want that either. So I, I don't know what, quite how serious a threat that is. But I think we're both saying this, is that I think the big political event of the year that will, that will dominate uh, the headlines much more than economic news. We'll talk about inflation and interest rates and whether stock markets go up or down this year. We'll do that a lot this year. Of course we will, because they're all important things. But the most important thing will be, A, what happens in those midterms, the actual outcome, the probable resurgence of the Republican Party. And secondly, then what they go on to do. As I say, there are already some very sinister suggestions so it's not looking good, Jim. I must say, I, I am very worried. And I think Friedman is right. And, and The Economist is right. And Ferguson is right. And Liz Cheney is right. And everybody else who's writing this kind of stuff and talking about this sort of thing to try and draw attention to it. And that movie that inspired Friedman to write this piece, and a movie that I thought was absolutely brilliant, Don't Look Up, I would urge you to have a look at. Because I do think it is, in part at least, could be interpreted as this asteroid, metaphorical asteroid that's about to hit the United States is, is not the thing that the movie critics say it's about, which is, which is, which is climate change, but it's, it's, it's about politics. And, it, and, and the, the, the effect could be like an asteroid hitting the United States. I sincerely hope it's not. But I, I do think that the people making this point, jumping up and down saying, look, this is about to hit us and... You know, we're not taking it seriously enough. I think that, that that's what this is all about. And that's what we're talking about now. We're taking it very seriously, but that's only us two, mate. I just don't know enough if enough people are taking it seriously enough in the States. Yeah, I mean, Friedman started that piece by talking about his feelings when he woke up Christmas morning. He was greeted by one piece of good news, two pieces of depressing news. The good news was the James Webb Space Telescope that had been launched which is a collaboration between Canada, the United States and Europe. And he said that the level of trust to do big, hard things together is still alive and that this telescope was being sent out there to discover unexpected truths. And the two bad pieces of news then were, number one, Omicron numbers climbing steadily in the United States and elsewhere. And secondly, then uh, the narrative around the impending first anniversary of the storming of Congress on the 6th of January last. And um, he talks about the Republican Party, you know, unlike the James Webb telescope trying to discover unexpected truths, the Republican Party and its media allies are trying to celebrate and propagate alternative facts. Okay, and, you know, he believes that unless sensible Republicans like Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and others 
actually look up um, and see what's happening, that this is a real threat to democracy in the United States and posing the threat of a civil war, as you've discussed. Uh, the other thing I think that is worth pointing out about Friedman's piece is, okay, he has a real go at Trumpism and that sort of alt-right alternative fact type um, phenomenon that we've become accustomed to over the last four or five years. But he also has a go at the far left um, of the Democratic Party, you know, these whole move to try and dismantle police forces, take funding away from police forces, reduce their power, etc. Uh, the existential threat that also is to democracy in the United States. And he, I, I guess his parting comment really is that um, we can't really stand back and wait for the political system to do something about this, that non-political interests have got to get involved. And he specifically talks about two business organizations, one called the Business Roundtable and the other called the Business Council. Um, and both of those represent about 200 of the most powerful companies in the United States, implying about 20 million people. And he makes the point that these companies re need to realize that civil war would not be good for business and that they need to stand up now and start to pressurize the political system into saving American democracy at this juncture. So, so pretty hard hitting stuff. Um, and to be honest, as you said, we have no idea where this is going to go, but it definitely is moving in a very, very sinister direction. And, you know, the quote you had from Liz Cheney there, I think, sums it up very well. You can be loyal to Donald Trump or you can be loyal to the Constitution, but not to both. And I think Americans really need to think long and hard about that. Um, so it's, 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 it is really going to be a very interesting year. Chris, before we uh, turn over to a little bit of a COVID corner, um, just I see on my screen here that the Exchequer returns for 2021 have just been published in Ireland. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go into any detail here, but I will be writing about it later for our Substack account. So if you go up either tonight or tomorrow morning. But the headline numbers are quite remarkable. Um, tax receipts have hit a record high of 68.4 billion, which is 11.2 billion ahead of 2020. Um, in an environment where COVID-19 was having such a detrimental impact on parts of the economy, that is an incredible tax revenue performance. As I say, I will write and break down the detail of that a little bit later on, and we will put it up on our Substack site as quickly as possible. Um, COVID corner, Chris, um, it's, it's been an extraordinary uh, even couple of weeks since we last recorded a podcast. Uh, what's your take on it from your side of the REC? The Office for National Statistics decided to publish its weekly COVID survey two days early because the numbers were so extraordinary. I, I don't think this is done in Ireland, but the Office for National Statistics, Statistics conducts its own swab survey of the country and literally sends people door to door throughout the UK, swabbing people's noses and throats um, in a statistical survey way, sampling the UK population to try and get a sense of population level COVID incidents. So this is different, you know, completely different, no connection with the daily numbers that are published by the British government as a result of people doing PCR and other types of tests. This is a completely separate survey. 
It's done properly. They've been doing it throughout the whole of the pandemic. So for much of the last two years, it's a weekly survey and it's, uh, it's been very accurate, we think. And the numbers that they decided to publish early today are truly extraordinary. In England, last Friday, one in 15 people had this disease. One in 15. And in London, it was one in 10. 10% of London's population last Friday actually had COVID, actively had this disease. These are truly remarkable numbers. And of course, there are lots of things that one might say about that. You can talk about it personally and, and, and the risks that, that one is running. I, actually, over Christmas, I was convinced that I'd got COVID again. Um, I had all the classic symptoms um, and you know felt quite ill for a day or two. Uh, who knows what it was. Um, my own theory is that I had been exposed to it because if you are out and about in this country because of those numbers that I just quoted, it's not possible to not be exposed to COVID. Um, so I, I, I'd like to think that my, my, system, my immune system was mounting a response to a particular COVID exposure that I had, but who knows. My local pub here in the UK mysteriously closed uh, after Christmas and uh, nobody knew why. There was no sign on the door uh, as to why it was closed. And we were all worried that, you know, this tragedy of, of a pub closing had happened to us in, in where I live. And it turns out, I found out today, that the entire staff on Christmas Eve contracted COVID. So there hasn't even been anybody to go and stick a notice on the door to, to explain this, because um, they've all been self-isolating at home. Keir Starmer has got uh, the leader of the Labour Party has got COVID again. It was announced uh, yesterday or today, I think. And, that, and he only had it recently as October, November. And so it's just, it is literally everywhere. The remarkable thing, of course, is that the health service hasn't collapsed because hospitalizations and deaths haven't gone up in any way like they would have done this time last year if we'd had these numbers, because it seems, as we know, Omicron is uh, not quite as severe in terms of its its uh, impact on, on our health, which is a great good thing. But it, that loops us all the way back to what I was saying earlier on, is that the, one of the main reasons why our hospitals are nevertheless still under pressure, it's not the only reason, but one of the big reasons is that, that the hospitals are full of um, anti-vax or unvaccinated people. People are, are unvaccinated for all sorts of reasons, not just because they're, they're anti-vax. I mean, in France, um, I was reading, going back to, to the Macron story, trying to find out who are the anti-vaxxers, um, who are the people who have not been vaccinated. And one political commentator wrote it up beautifully, I thought, and I'll quote. He said, the 10% the, the of people who are not jabbed in France are an eclectic, eclectic bunch of anti-vax crazies, libertarians, and a large number of over 80s who rarely leave home and foolishly don't see any point in getting jabbed. And he goes on to make the point that few of them are Macron voters anyway, so Macron pissing them off is, is neither here nor there. And I think that kind of a description of anti-vaxxers or the non-jab, to a greater or lesser extent, is probably true here in, in the UK. We, we have a lot of anti-vax crazies. But the, the, the simple thing is that a large number of the, the people in our hospitals are not vaccinated. And the statistics are piling up. If you look at New York City, for example, New York City hospital data, there are, the, the number of unvaccinated versus vax is 20 times. There are 20, time, 20 times the number of unvaccinated people as jabbed in New York hospitals. In Switzerland, the number of deaths from COVID 
you're 20, 20 times the number of deaths of unvaccinated people versus vaccinated people. So the, the, the evidence, the data piles up from country to country that it's a real problem and that the, the unvaccinated are really messing with the rest of our lives, actually. It's not just COVID that's messing with our lives. It's these people who refuse to get jabbed. At risk of having another rant about that, um, I'll, I'll stop there. The final thing that I would say about in, the, in this strange uh, episode of COVID that we've got at the moment is, of course, Boris Johnson, unlike Ireland and unlike some other countries, has not pursued many more restrictions. He's done a few, but, you know, in England, the pubs are still open till all hours. He may or may not get away with this gamble. I reckon that it's probably a, it's a 50-50 bet. It lot depends now on the next two or three weeks data for hospitalizations. Not we know cases are nuts. I've mentioned how bad they are, but it's whether or not that the the the, the numbers are just so big that um, hospitals fall over in a serious sort of way. I reckon he's got a fifty fifty chance of getting away with it, but that is a fifty fifty chance that another Johnson gamble pays off for him. And whereas before Christmas we were talking about, you know, it's the beginning of the end for Johnson. If he pulls this one off and makes people like uh, Sturgeon in Scotland and Drakeford in Wales look like idiots, um, and he begins to look like a, a COVID hero again, um, it may well be that um, he's, you, you know, he gets away with it again. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about that. As far as I can tell about the data, Jim, those numbers that I quoted for the UK. If I look at the incidence rate in Ireland versus the UK, it's even worse where you are, isn't it? It is much worse. I'd say we're probably one of the highest in the world at the moment in terms of infections, because the reality is that midnight last night, for example, I checked there was not a PCR test available in any county in the country today. And indeed, I think tomorrow. So the testing system is up against its limit. It's up against its capacity. So as a consequence, there's a lot of people out there with COVID that are not being officially declared. So the underlying number is significantly higher than the official statistics suggest. Um, On the other hand, of course, that definitely we're seeing a breakdown in the linkage between the disease itself and hospitalization. Okay, hospitalization numbers are going up here, uh, but relative to the growth in case numbers, the hospitalization situation is very very controlled still so there's a breakage in that link it would appear which is good news and i guess what we are likely to see here over the next two or three weeks is basically it continues to work its way through the population and most of us will end up getting covid and hopefully most of us will come out the other side relatively unaffected um we have restrictions here since before christmas pubs and restaurants are closing at eight o'clock um, so we're living with a pretty significant level of restriction at the moment. Nothing like where we were at this time last year. But I, I certainly sense out there that people are more relaxed today than they were this time last year. There is more hope that actually things are starting to get better. You, you mentioned that you have more restrictions in Ireland than we have here in the UK. And we've both commented that the the, the seven-day average case numbers are worse in Ireland than they are in the UK. Um, it doesn't seem that your restrictions have done you any good. Well, I, I guess the, the counterfactual would be if, um, if those restrictions hadn't been in place, what would the situation be like? I don't think it would be any different. Um, I argued on the podcast at the time that 
I thought those restrictions were mad. I mean, the initial suggestion from Neffet was that the pubs would close and restaurants at five o'clock. Um, they then pushed it out to eight o'clock. I, I thought that was nuts personally. And um, I, I, do, I just don't think it has done anything to control the spread of the virus. Uh, but the amazing thing is that the people have taken it. You know, there's no strong reaction other than from, you know, a few, a few people who feel very strongly about it. But as has been the case for the last two years, uh, we've just accepted once again a very significant level of restriction. Uh, we're, we're a quiet people in many ways. Um, and I, I, I certainly look at what Boris is doing across the water and wonder, you know, having... Ireland is one of the countries for the last couple of years that has been subject to amongst the most stringent conditions in the world on a consistent basis. Um, you know, would we have been much better off by adopting a UK type approach? And we we at least would have got to live relatively normal lives without a significantly different outcome in terms of the disease. But if you're not that bothered by your restrictions, you're not that bothered by them. So, well, I I am bothered personally. But you're um, obviously you're saying that you're in a tiny minority. Well, well, no, <laughs> that's a tiny non-vocal minority. Or sorry, there's a strong non-vocal majority of people out there who I think believe that these restrictions are mad. But we just don't say anything about it. We don't do anything about it. We just accept it. We get on with it. Most of us, except on this podcast, Jim. Except on this podcast, I guess. Um, but the the, uh, the there was, there was an, an interesting development here in social media over the last week or two. I'm not sure if you've been following it. Um, I've been vaguely aware there was a guy who ran a Twitter account reporting on COVID statistics on a daily basis. A guy called Connor. He, I know um, the Twitter account. Yeah. Yeah, he provided a really good service, good analysis of the data. And indeed, it was the type of analysis that the media here, you know, the health correspondent in RTE and the newspapers should have been conducting. Uh, but he did it. But it transpired over the last few days that he actually worked or works for Pfizer. And as a consequence, uh, the interpretation out there in Twitter land is that what he was doing was seriously biased by the fact that he works for a pharma company. I cannot possibly see how that could possibly be the case, but there has been an absolute avalanche of vitriol on Twitter as a result of that. And the guys closed down the account. And um, I think personally, it's a sad loss to the reporting on COVID. I followed that account um, quite closely and it always struck me as being just very factually data-based. It didn't seem to be any spin to me in terms of the way the numbers were being promoted. There were good days and bad days for the numbers. They they weren't spun in any particular way. So I think, you know, that's a shame that he's been driven off Twitter. But we both know, perhaps we should end here, Jim, that that Twitter is a marvellous resource for getting all sorts of information quickly and and getting all sorts of um, research done. But we also know that it can be an absolute cesspit. It's a sewer. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. All right, buddy. Um, speak to you soon. Cheers. Forward to it. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account: www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.